Welcome to the Growing Downward podcast, brought to you by Reformation Heritage Books. We're pleased to present Nick Thompson's sermon series on humility that was the impetus for his book, Growing Downward, a work that centers on the necessity of true humility in Christian life. Thanks for listening, and be sure to get a copy of Growing Downward at heritagebooks.org, and also make sure to visit growingdownward.com where you will find information, including interviews, study guides, and more. I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation 22. We are drawing our Humility Sermon Series to a close. So next week will be our final week looking at this theme. I want us to end by taking a good look at Christ and the humility of Christ, uh, because I think that that is the key to growing in humility ourselves. And so we'll end there next week. But this week, uh, we have a rich and wonderful vision given to us in Revelation 22 as we see the hope that is stored up for all those who are humble. And uh, John here gives us this vision of what he calls a new heaven and a new earth. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. We'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And his name will be on their foreheads and nights will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon his word. Holy Spirit, you are the one who has inspired this word. You are the one who gave this heavenly vision to the Apostle John, the one who has chosen in grace and in kindness to reveal to us not only the beginning of this world, but also the end. And you've given us this vision for a reason, Lord. You've given us this vision because it is to change the way that we live here and now. And we pray, God, you would give us eyes, spiritual eyes, to see what John saw here. That you would strengthen our hearts to grasp the glory and majesty that is set before us in these verses. Please help us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. As we've been seeing over the last number of weeks, 
future reality, what God has promised us in the future, is to change the way that we live in present reality. We've been looking at a number of different future realities that God has told us about in his word, the reality of death, of judgment, and then of the eternal states of hell and of heaven. Been looking at what we're calling eschatological humility because we see that all of these truths are designed by God. They're intended by God to cultivate within us humility, to cultivate within us the lowly spirit, the, the downward disposition of a Godward self-perception. We looked at the eternal state of the proud last week as we saw the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And this morning we're going to look at the eternal state of the humble. What is the hope of those who are humble in Jesus Christ? What is their hope? In order to answer that question, we first need to think carefully about what we even mean by the word hope. What does the Bible mean when it speaks of our future hope? You see, we use that word very often to refer to wishful thinking. I hope I get the job. I hope I don't blow the performance. I hope the preacher isn't long winded this morning. I hope, I hope, I hope. That's not the way that the Bible uses hope. And so when I ask the question this morning, what is the hope of the humble? I don't mean wishful thinking. I mean what the Bible means when it speaks about hope. And that is not wishful thinking, but confident expectation. Confident expectation. Hope looks to the future with rock solid anticipation. And what is it? What is it anticipating? What is it expecting? It's expecting God to fulfill all of his promises in Jesus Christ. And that's why hope is so confident, because the ground of hope is God and his word. And that word is most sure. And so when I ask, what is the hope of the humble? I'm asking, what is the, the future confident expectation? What is it that, that the saints, that those who are in Christ, those who are humble, are looking forward to with rock-solid anticipation? That's the question. It's an important question. And it's a question that we need to ask as we think about humility, because Humility is related to hope. We've seen that humility is intimately related to the fear of God. It's intimately related to faith. It's intimately related to sacrificial love. And humility is also intimately related to future, future hope. And that's so for at least three reasons. Now, the first is because of hope's nature. As I've just said, hope is a confident expectation. But unless you humbly tremble at God's word, you can't have a confident expectation in the future. So a proud man who denies God and God's word, he might have wishful thinking about the future, wishful thinking about his eternity, but he can't have hope. 
You can't have hope like the Scriptures give. That's for the humble alone. Solid security is only for those who possess humility. So because of hope's nature, but also because of hope's recipients, future blessedness is held out for the humble alone. So, for example, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We saw last week that eternal woe is the future of the proud. Glad hope belongs to the humble alone. But there's there's a third reason. It's an important reason and one that we're really going to spend the rest of this morning looking at as we stare into this vision, and that is hope's anticipation. What is it that hope is looking forward to? Well, biblical hope has its sight set ultimately on this. A radically renovated world wherein God's people will be with Him, worshiping Him perpetually. Only the humble would eagerly long for a world like that. A world in which God is all in all. You see, the anti-God state of mind that is pride would find such a world repulsive. Give me anything but that. I don't want to be with God. Worshiping God for all eternity. This is the hope of the humble. Solid hope belongs to the humble alone. Humility hopes. And humility hopes ultimately in what John is beholding in this vision. The vision actually begins in chapter 21. And it begins in verse 1 where John says that he saw a new heaven and a new earth. As John's vision unfolds, we see that this new heaven and new earth, this radically renovated world, is a temple-like city. It's a city that is a temple. And in this city, God is everywhere present and God is everywhere adored. And what happens when we get to chapter 22 is is we begin to see, we already get glimpses of it a little bit in Revelation 21, but in Revelation 22, it becomes apparent that this city, this new Jerusalem, looks strikingly similar to the Garden of Eden. Notice first that the humble anticipate Godward restoration. John begins by telling us about a river. Verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. So there, there is this river running straight through the middle of this city, bright as crystal, providing soul-satisfying drink for all the inhabitants of this land. We don't have time to look at it this morning, but but John is drawing from Ezekiel 47. In fact, if you were to look at Ezekiel's prophecy, and I encourage you to do that at some point, you would see uh, remarkable similarities between the two. And what's clear in Ezekiel is that Ezekiel is pointing back to the original Garden of Eden. 
Because the original Garden of Eden had what flowing through it? It had a river, a river of life flowing through that. You see that in Genesis 2, verse 10. And here, there is a river. And notice that this spiritual soul-satisfying river is flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. So there's an Eden-like river. But there's also an Eden-like tree. Verse 2. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This tree is never out of season. It's always providing delicious, luscious fruits to satisfy the souls of the citizens of this city. And of course, it's it's pointing back, it's reminding us of the original tree of life in the garden, which held out eternal life to all those who ate of it. We see here a very simple truth, but a very important truth, and that is that the Bible ends where the Bible begins. The Bible ends where the Bible begins. We have a river flowing fruit bearing God-inhabited garden. That's where it began, Genesis 1 and 2. That's where it ends, Revelation 21 and 22. But there's something that we need to see, and that is that this garden at the end is better than the garden at the beginning. Now, why would I say that? What's better about it? Well, what's better about it is that this garden cannot be lost. Remember, God God had offered life to Adam. Life, that's what's being emphasized in Revelation 22. The river of life, the tree of life, 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 eternal life. And God had offered life to Adam. But He'd offered life to Adam upon the condition of perfect obedience. In other words, it was life that could be forfeited. It was life that came with the threat of death attached to it. In the day that you rise up in prideful rebellion against me and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, dying you will die. So there's a threat of death. Life could be forfeited. And pride, pride is what would do it. And pride did do it. Adam rose up in satanic pride and he rebelled against his creator. And what happened? Adam was barred from the tree of life. He was barred from the river of life. He was barred from the garden of life. He was barred from the God of life, from the temple. But the garden in John's vision is one of unforfeitable life. The original garden, life there could be forfeited. It could be lost. And it was. The garden here, it can't be lost. Eternal life. The curse brought about by Adam's pride has been undone eternally. Look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. Now why is that? Well, it's because of the Lamb 
who is enthroned at the right hand of God. That's what makes this garden better. That's what makes this life sure. He humbly obeyed when we pridefully rebelled. He humbly suffered the death our pride deserved. And now this slain and risen lamb has been enthroned. He's been enthroned as a lion-like king. And it's from this throne, from the throne of the lamb, that this river, these gracious blessings, it's actually a picture of the Holy Spirit, is flowing to God's people in this glorious, life-giving garden. This is Godward restoration. Godward restoration. God getting His people back to the garden and ensuring that they continue there everlastingly. While hell is a place of consummate curse for the proud, the new earth is a place of consummate blessing for the humble. The curse is removed. It's gone. No more. And since God's curse is the result, it's the consequence of pride, the removal of the curse implies the removal of pride. The people of this city are perfected in humility. In our glorified condition, we will be perfectly lowly. And that's that's made clear by what the inhabitants of this city are doing, friends. That's not just some inference that I drew rather haphazardly, but it's it's obvious that humility has been perfected here because of what is happening. And that brings us to the second point. That is that the humble anticipate Godward adoration. Look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. There's a contrast here. You see the contrast in the word but, right in the middle of verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but... So there's a contrast between the curse and God's sovereign presence. There is no curse just because God is enthroned here. The throne of God and of the Lamb is the opposite of the curse. It's the source of all true blessedness. The blessedness of the new earth is not ultimately found in freedom from sin. It's not ultimately found in freedom from suffering. It's ultimately found in God Himself through the Lamb. God is reigning here. He's reigning as the uncontested Lord. His majesty and holiness are manifest for all to see. And the inhabitants of this land are given over to serving their king. Godward worship, Godward exaltation, Godward adoration. They're seeing God. Look at verse 4. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. This is a sight that we simply 
cannot fathom. A seeing that we cannot fathom. This is not a seeing that is by faith. This is not a seeing that is through the Word of God, the Scriptures. This is a seeing with glorified human eyes. Physical eyes that have been so transformed by the Spirit that they are enabled to behold the very face of God without being consumed. We can't grasp what this is going to be like. God tells us throughout His Word, no man can see me and live. And we can't. We can't here and now see God as He is and live. It would cause our hearts to explode the weight of majesty and joy and ecstasy and delight found in the triune God would be too much for us to bear. But on this day, the Spirit is going to so transform us, so strengthen us that we are enabled to bear the bright beams of the glory of God, to bask in them, to open our eyes and and see them, to see Him as He is. The imagery here is priestly. Priestly language that John is using. Remember the the old covenant high priest. What did he have upon his forehead? He had the name of God upon his forehead on a big gold plate. And here the inhabitants of this land have the name of God upon their forehead. Remember the Holy of Holies in the old covenant. It was a perfect cube, ten by ten by ten. And if you were to look back at Revelation 21, verses 15 through 17, you would see that the the measurement of this city, this garden temple, is a perfect cube. As the high priest in the Old Covenant would enter the Holy of Holies only by the blood, the blood of a lamb slain, so too, these priests, these redeemed creatures who are Worshiping God in the Holy of Holies, do it only through the Lamb slain and risen for sinners. Kids, do you remember when we looked at Genesis chapter 1, how we saw there that the original Garden of Eden was a temple. It was the temple, which then the Old Covenant temple was based off of. And Adam served as a priest in that temple. Adam was to worship God and he was to seek to extend the borders of the temple to the ends of the earth, to be fruitful and multiply so that the image of God would be spread around the globe. And here what we see is that that is finally being fulfilled. The Holy of Holies is not just a little box somewhere in the new heavens and new earth. It is the whole thing. From shore to shore. And every inhabitant of this land is beholding God face to face. Old covenant, the high priest could just go in once a year. One guy, once a year. That's it. This is perpetual, constant beholding of the face of God in the Holy of Holies forever. 
Now, such a sight makes the proud to cry out for the rocks to fall upon them. This is the very thing that the proud hate. Such a sight is repulsive to them. They hate God. Pride's worst nightmare is seeing God's face. But the people here, the people here are relishing in it. They are worshiping. They are adoring. They are seeing and they're not saying we got to run and hide. We got to get away from this God. They they are exulting in who this God is. This is amazing. God, the living God dwelling with man, he's living with us and we know him and we're with him in fellowship, communion forever. This this is pure joy, pure joy. Joy that none of us know to this degree. We, we have little tastes of it here. This is, this is joy that would make our hearts implode if we were to know it here in this life, in our unglorified condition. They're relishing in the presence of God. And here's the reason why. It's because they're beholding the glory of God through the Lamb. Look back at chapter 21, verse 23. We're told there that the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. This is, this is a beautiful image, an image that all of us can resonate with. We all have lamps in our house. And what do you do with a lamp? You put a light bulb in it and you turn it on. And John is saying that the light of God's glory is shining through the lamp of the Lamb of God. That Christ himself, the crucified and risen Christ, is the lamp through which the brilliant splendor of God's life-giving glory is shining upon the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem. The humble of the new earth live before God with a mediator. With a mediator. Remember we saw a couple of weeks ago, we, we tried to get our minds around very frailly, what it would be like to stand before God without a mediator. Here, we are standing before God with a mediator, the Lamb. The Lamb. And the saints are willfully and joyfully rendering worship. Worship to God. They're fearing God perfectly. They possess an all-controlling sense of His majesty and holiness. They are perpetually reverencing Him. Seeing Him as He truly is. And thus, they are humble. They have the downward disposition of a Godward self-perception. God's name is upon them. They know themselves to be creatures before Him. They are perfectly satisfied in Him. They are looking to Him for their identity and their purpose. This is the creature rightly relating to the Creator. That's what's happening here. The creature 
through a mediator, rightly relating to the creator. And never without a sense of indebtedness to the mediator, to the lamb. For this right relationship was brought about through his cross. Take a good look at this vision before you. Just, just look down. Don't look at me. Look, look down at it. Look at, look at verses three and verses four. This is perfect dependence upon God. This is perfect submission to God. This is perfect delight in God. This, friends, is perfect humility. Perfect humility. And this is our hope if we are pursuing humility in Christ. Now, one day, you will no longer see through a glass dimly. One day, you will no longer worship with a divided, cold heart. One day, you will taste infinite goodness in a way you simply cannot fathom now. But the vision is not complete. It's not complete because not only will we serve God as glorified priests, but we will also reign with God as glorified kings. That brings us to the third point that the humble anticipate Godward exaltation. Look at the second part of verse five. And they will reign forever and ever. This is how the vision ends. The throne of God and of the Lamb is extended to the four corners of the globe and every inhabitant is reigning with God everlastingly. Now the question is, how do we understand this? This seems almost to contradict what we saw in Isaiah chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago where uh, speaking of the day of judgment, Isaiah said that God alone will be exalted in that day. God alone is going to be the king on that day. And that, of course, is a foretaste of future glory. What happens on judgment is then going to be extended into eternity. God alone is going to be exalted. So how do we reconcile that with us, the saints, the humble reigning forever? We need to see that God is is not here giving individual thrones to individual saints that he sets up next to God's throne so that there's all these individuals reigning alongside of God. What's happening here is that God is inviting his humble people to share in his very reign. You remember the the first time that dad lets you drive the car? You're maybe three or four years old and dad sat you on his lap and your legs weren't uh, long enough to reach the pedals. Your arms weren't strong enough to turn the steering wheel. But dad sat you on his lap in the driver's seat and you and dad drove around the neighborhood hoping not to run into a police officer. And as you did, you thought this was the coolest thing. And, and you get home, and what would you say to mom? To, mom, 
I drove the car. I drove the car, Mom. And there's a sense in which that was true. Your hands were on the wheel. You were in the driver's seat. You drove the car. But Mom knows that Dad was the one driving the car the whole time. You didn't, you didn't really drive the car. That's what's going on here. God is inviting His humble children to sit on His lap as He reigns over all things. So there's a sense in which, yeah, we're really reigning. You really drove the car. But everybody knows. Dad's the one reigning. God's the one that is king. And this, friends, this again, this is so wonderful. I love how gloriously unified the Bible is because it's inspired by God. One singular divine author. And so throughout, we have this singular story. This, too, is the fulfillment of God's original purpose for man in the garden. Remember, God had called Adam to exercise dominion. He was to rule, not as the ultimate king, but as a lowercase k king. He was to rule under God. And as God's mini king, he was to extend the rule of God to the ends of the earth. In other words, Adam was to sit on God's lap and to rule with God, to share in God's sovereign dominion. It's a call that Adam forfeited when he exalted himself above God. But now, now, because of the Lamb, because of the Lamb, we have the hope of perfectly reigning with God. In a new earth, we will share in his cosmic victory. And it just struck me this morning as I was preparing to preach uh, how wonderful this is and, and how um, flawed my, my sermon is. <laughs> the, a hard thing to be an hour before preaching and to recognize your outline for your sermon is actually not very good. And that's that's what I realized this morning, because what what was the first point of my sermon? The first point of my sermon was uh, that we anticipate God word restoration. Right. But the whole thing is God restoring his original purpose for man. That's not just point one. That's point two. The adoration, the priestly worship. That's God restoring man to his original purpose and perfecting him in it. The kingly exaltation, that's God's restoration of man taking the humble and bringing them back to what he had originally created them to do. So I encourage you to think of a better outline than the preacher has this morning. It's all restoration. Maybe there should just be one point. I don't know. I'll let you decide. But it's it's wonderful, friends, to grasp what God is going to do here. What God has purposed to do through the Lamb. And for our purposes this morning, 
it's important for us to recognize that this exalted reign is the result of humility. It is the fulfillment of God's promise to give grace to the humble. Listen to what Jesus himself said in Luke 14, 11. He said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Or Psalm 147, verse 6, the Lord lifts up. He lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. And here we see those realities in consummate finality. This is it. This is consummate exaltation. God is lifting up his humble people to the highest place imaginable, to the very throne of God in heaven itself. Can you think of a higher height than that? I can't. This is profound lowliness wed to a profound height. And it's it's not for a moment. It's forever and ever. So this is our hope, friends, the, the hope of the humble. If you are humble today, not perfectly humble, but if you're if you're humble by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, this is the confident, assured hope that God has promised you. This is what all things are working towards Godward restoration, Godward adoration, Godward exaltation. Your hardest boss, he has a, a really wonderful sermon on first Peter chapter one, where Peter talks about our living hope. And Voss says that the oxygen of the world to come, the air of the world to come is to be what is uh, sustaining us as we continue in this present world. The oxygen of the world to come is to be what's in our spiritual lungs as we continue here below. Think, think about that for a minute. Think about kids, uh, an astronaut going to the moon. Uh, what, what does he have to do? Well, he's going to a place that's not his home. And so he has to bring oxygen with him, right? Because if he doesn't do that, he's going to die. He can't, he can't breathe the atmosphere on the moon. He's got to bring air from home in order to survive. And what, what Voss is saying is that this world is not our home. Okay? If you try to breathe the air of this world, you're going to die. You've got to breathe the air of the place that you actually belong. And if you've been born again, as Peter says, born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if that's happened, then you've got to be breathing the air of that living resurrection hope. Humility hopes. It's got hope in its lungs. It's breathing, it's living upon the world to come. And, and that means that the future hope that is ours 
has profound implications for how we do live in this world. When we've got the air of the new heaven and the new earth in our lungs, that is how we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That is how we can be perplexed, but not driven to despair. That's how we can be struck down, but not destroyed. It's how we can know that our earthly labors are not in vain. It's how we can bear up under the cross that God has called us to bear in this earthly life. You see, this earthly pilgrimage is not supposed to be easy. The Bible nowhere says it's a bed of roses. It nowhere says it's going to be comfortable. It nowhere promises a, a nice life. Jesus says it's going to be a cross. It's going to be death, dying daily. But God gives us, through texts like this, a window into the future in order to strengthen our souls with a joy that no tragedy or trial can rob us of. You see, we live in a a prideful world, a world in which God is not acknowledged, in which God's reign is defied. But God is telling us that one day his throne will be acknowledged by all. We live with prideful hearts, hearts that are divided by sin, hearts that at some points and in some ways desire humbly to serve God. And yet, uh, at the same time, proudly defy him. The holiest Christian is a heap of inconsistency in this life. And if you don't know yourself to be such, it's because you don't know yourself. You don't understand who you actually are. We're all heaps of inconsistency. Delighting in God at one moment and then seeking an idol at the next. God is telling us here that one day, one day our hearts will be perfectly united in adoring Worship. We often feel distance from God. Our, our vision of Him is, is cloudy. It's, it's dim at best. But God is telling us that one day, with our physical eyes, we will be so transformed by the Spirit that we will see Him. Through the Lamb, we'll see God. We suffer the effects of the curse upon our pride. We suffer, friends. In our physical bodies, in our vocations, in our relationships. But God is telling us that one day there will be nothing that is accursed. One day there will be no discord. One day there will be no cancer. One day there will be no tears. One day there will be no mourning grind. Perfect blessedness will be Hearts. The new earth. The new earth. Have you breathed its air? Have you breathed its air this morning? As, as we've just been sticking our heads into this text, have you just taken a deep breath and allowed it to get into your soul? into your spiritual lungs. 
the sweetness of this air, this oxygen, what life, what joy. This is what the humble breathe. This is what they live upon. The hope of perfect blessedness bestowed upon perfect humility. And such hope, such hope leads the humble to cry. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus. We long to see your rain spread from shore to shore. We long to be brought into what is set before us here in this vision. We confess, God, that we we don't grasp the weight of majesty that is here. We don't understand it with our minds. We don't uh, properly uh, sense it with our affections. God, we are so weak. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to catch just a breath of the oxygen of this world. That You would get it into our spiritual lungs, that it would change the way that we live here and now, that it would change the way that we relate to our sin, that it would change the way that uh, we relate to our work, that it would change the way we relate to the trials that you bestow upon us, that it would change the way we relate to everything, because this future reality is supposed to Radically change, Lord, the way that we live now. That's why John wrote it under the inspiration of the Spirit. And so we pray, God, that You would change us by it. That You would give us hope. That You would work such hope in us. Confident expectation in a radically renovated earth where You will be all in all. God, I pray this morning for any here who would not be a rightful heir of this hope. Any here who is not trusting in the Lamb. Any here who has not laid hold of the mediator between God and sinful man. Oh Lord, would You open their eyes to see The glory that is here. The glory that is being offered to them in Christ. Eternal blessedness. Eternal pleasures at your right hand. God, cause them not to spurn this. Cause them not to sell their souls for the sake of fleeting toys and treasures in this earth that will soon rust and decay and be nothing. Wake them up. Wake us all up, God. Wake us up to the glory of eternity, to the glory of God in 
Christ cause us to see the light, even if it be dimly, even if it be through the mediation of your word, cause us to see the light of your glory through the lamp. The lamp of the lamp. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen.